0: You know, some people don't like the two minutes of silence that makes them nervous. I find myself just getting into it at two minutes, just okay. I'm glad we do that. How would you answer this question? What's the most outstanding characteristic or feature of the American church in the 21st century? What's the most outstanding characteristic or feature of the American church in the 21st century? Let's ask the same question about Christ Community Church. Let's narrow down our focus. What's what's the most outstanding characteristic or feature of Christ Community Church. One of the most outstanding and influential characteristics of the early church was its radical commitment to mercy. I'm reading from a couple of quotes that are on the front of your bulletin, but this gives you a sense of uh, what I'm aiming at here. In the year 260 A.D., there was a church leader named Dionysus. And he made really a very stunning pronouncement about the church at that point. He says this, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. For they were infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. A hundred years later, the emperor, Roman emperor named Julian, who followed Constantine, who Julian hated Christianity and wanted to eradicate uh, the Roman kingdom of Christianity, yet his attempts were not successful because of the church's radical display of mercy, particularly to the poor. And as much as he wanted to revive paganism, it, it just, the, the, the sound of the mercy of the church was drowning out his efforts. And he wrote this in a letter. The Christians, he called them Galileans at that point, the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see our people lack aid from us. You see what was happening? I mean, everyone knew in the Roman Empire that the, the Roman Empire wasn't taking care of the poor. And they were looking around and seeing, who's taking care of the poor? And they said, well, it looks like the Christians. And it's not just the people inside of their church, they're taking care of the poor all across the city, all across the Roman Empire. And it was a very powerful characteristic or influence. But one of the main reasons that the early church could have such a powerful powerful effect on the culture is that the message that the people were bringing coincided with the messenger's activity. There was no difference from hearing the message than from seeing the message. You might say that the message and the messenger were singing off the same sheet of music. When I read a historical account like this, I ask myself, in my ministry, am I willing to transfer someone else's death to myself? Is is that characteristic just of me? Am I willing to get in and involved in a way that it might actually cost me my life? And my effort might give them life, but it might cost me my own. Well, I'm not sure I want to hear my own answer, so I ask another question. I ask this question, what was the source of supply that energized this group of early Christians? I mean, why was it that this was the feel or the flavor or the characteristic of the early church? What, what was it that they had? What, what, what were they plugging into that was allowing them to then turn back around and give their life for somebody that they didn't even know? Last week we focused our attention on the message, the gospel, and... As we move into a new building, we wanted to to be reminded that as a church that we have to make the gospel preeminent. You may remember the picture of of people coming around the, the base of the cross, and at the cross there's equality. Everybody's on the same level ground. But in order to stay that way, everybody has to sort of intentionally put their hand on the cross to say, this is the preeminent thing. This is the thing that's giving us life. This is what's giving us hope. And, and we may all be involved in something different with our other hand, but we must all at least have one hand on the cross, one, one hand on the gospel, making that preeminent. And this week I want to listen into or listen in on one of Jesus' conversations that is going to remind us of the importance of the message, but also remind us the importance of the messenger. Let's look at Luke chapter 10. When you look at the very beginning of the chapter, perhaps your Bible has a heading, Jesus sends out the 72, and Jesus has basically sent his disciples... In 36 pairs. Of course he had 12 disciples and then he had another larger sort of circle of followers. And he sent them out as sort of an advanced team. He's going to visit all these different cities. And so he's taking his pairs and saying, hey can you go out and you sort of prepare the way. You begin to talk about the kingdom of God and that it's coming. And then as I come into the city, uh, maybe I'll have a bit better reception or more... Understanding. There'll be some hunger there for what I have to say. And by the time we reach chapter, or verse 25 in chapter 10, the, the disciples have returned from that. And they're gathered around Jesus and they're telling him things about what happened in their journey, and then he's providing some instruction back. And it's at this point that a lawyer or an expert in the Old Testament, let's think of the person as a Bible teacher. He's standing around, maybe on the periphery at some point, and he interrupts the conversation. Luke tells us that the Bible teacher interrupts the conversations to test Jesus. I mean, maybe the expert Bible teacher wanted to come in and, and really make sure this person was getting it right. Maybe he didn't know who Jesus was. Maybe he'd heard some things about him, but didn't know that Jesus had studied anywhere particularly formally. And so he wanted just to come in and say, well, let's make sure this guy's giving out the, the right answers. And so he interrupts Jesus with really one of the most important questions anybody can ask. What, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, now think about this for a moment. Here is a, such a great opportunity. These disciples have just gone out and served as an advanced team, telling the people that they ran into that the kingdom of God is coming, telling them about their encounters with Jesus. And, and they've had all out of these one-on-one conversations. And they come back, and now Jesus is talking to them, and inserted is this Bible teacher who comes in and asks this very Powerful question, and and what a what a little teaching lab this is going to be. I mean, how is Jesus going to respond? What what would I say at this very point? I mean, they're able to sort of make a, a side by side. What did I say when people asked me this question? Now, what is Jesus going to say? And am I anywhere close to to what he said? And we can ask ourselves the same question. What if somebody stopped you and asked you this question? Hey, hey, can you tell me how I could inherit eternal life? I mean, quite a few of us here have studied the Bible. And, and a good number of those people have studied it enough to actually teach other people might be in your home it might be in a sunday school room it might be in a neighborhood bible study you might be a, a leader of some kind in a journey group or a community group i mean you're a many of you are are bible knowledge kind of group and, and somebody comes and asks you this question what's your answer what are you going to say my guess would catch you a little bit off guard I mean, you just don't have many people that come right up to you and ask you this kind of question. Maybe you wish more people did, but they don't. And, and you, you sort of maybe sort of take a step back and you think, gosh, what do, what do I say to this question? And, and of course you think of John 3.16 immediately. And you just say, well, you know, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that if you would believe in Him, you would have eternal life. If you're asking about eternal life? Let me point you to Jesus. That's, that's the answer. He is the answer. And you, you say it in some way like that. And that's not a bad answer. And look, huh, who better to give the answer? than the only begotten Son who's standing right here in this conversation. I mean, this is the perfect time for Jesus to just hit this man head on with the Gospel. But He doesn't do that. I, I just found this passage fascinating the more I read about it and considered what Jesus was doing here. Instead, He asks the man a question. It's like Jesus is, instead of launching into an answer, He's saying, you know the first thing I'm interested in here? Tell me about you. I mean, before I start giving a lot of information, why don't you give me some more information about yourself? I'm first interested in just looking at you and listening to you. I mean, you, you seem to know something, so, so why don't you say what you think? What's, what's in the law? How would you see it? How would you answer your own question? And the lawyer is quick to give an answer. Maybe that's a common characteristic among lawyers, quick to give an answer. That, that's a joke for my lawyer friends. Well, the man gives a good answer. He really gives an excellent answer. Uh, and the reason it's so excellent is he doesn't just give what he thinks. He goes back to the Bible. He just quotes two different Bible verses. I mean, how much better of an answer can you give? Because it's not them laying back on this man. He's saying, look, I'm getting my answers from the Bible. So he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he quotes Leviticus nineteen. Eighteen. You should love your neighbor as yourself. He, he's going to sum up all of the law in these two commandments. Exactly what Jesus does in another passage. And Jesus responds to the man, You're right. You're right, man. You got the right answer. Now just go and do it. Go and love God with your whole being. And go and love your neighbor with the same passion and the same energy that you love yourself. You, you get the feeling that, that Christ shakes His hand and says, gosh, slaps Him on the back and says, now now, have at it, you got it, You got it down. If you do those things, then you'll have life. Now, now what should the man have said at this point? He doesn't say this, but what should he have said at this point? He should have said, Sir, I have been teaching the Bible. I have been studying the Bible all of my adult life. I know the answers. But I can't do it. I cannot keep it. I know exactly what to do. I wake up each morning saying, I'm going to do it this way just for an hour, just for a day. But I find myself just quickly moving into my day and I can't keep the things that I know I should be doing. I am not here looking for more answers. I'm not looking for another list. I'm looking for mercy. Can you show me anyone who would give me mercy? Because I, I've had enough of lists and answers. Do you know somebody like that? that? That's what the man should have said. And Jesus just opens up a double door for this man to walk through and say that, but he doesn't. The man extinguishes any kind of conviction with his own pride... And if you look in the text, it says, well, he, he, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make sure that Jesus and probably the other disciples that are standing around knew that he had a good record. He, he had a clean slate. And he's got to make sure the crowd knows that he's okay. He's on the inside. He's got enough of it down. So he, he needs a way to display that. So he asked Jesus this sort of set-up question. Well, can you tell me who my neighbor is? He's fully anticipating that Jesus is going to say, well, basically people like you, other Jewish people that are sort of in your clan. And the guy's going to say, I've done that, see? And he's going to justify himself. And then Jesus gives them this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. When you read through the story, it's important to notice that Jesus is turning the man's question inside out. The man is looking for some clarity on who's the neighbor. In other words, can you give me another list of people that are really people I should be loving? And then I can go and say, am I doing that list? Am I getting that down? It's an external exercise the man is involved with. Instead, Jesus wants to examine the quality of this man's heart. He's not interested in the list. He's interested in the condition of the guy's heart. He, he wants to expose that this man has a very limited idea of what love actually means. It just means loving people like this. And Jesus wants to expose his heart to his own limitation. And so he's going to turn it into an internal question. You, you can almost always tell a religious person or, or, or a legalist, Because they're always stuck on the surface. They're always stuck with rules and regulations and commandments. And this is the way you're supposed to be doing it. And it's all on the external. When Jesus comes in, He's saying, No, 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 I'm interested in the internal. I'm not interested in what you've got to show me. I'm interested in what your heart really looks like. And so He's trying to get this man to understand the condition of his own heart. And, of course, the story is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. A man is traveling downhill. Jerusalem is at the very top of a mountain range. And so whenever you leave Jerusalem, you're always going downhill. And there's a road that snakes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem is at maybe 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. So it's all downhill. It's about a 15 or 20 mile walk. And the road is notoriously uh, unsafe. It's not surprising that people are taking their wares from one city to the other and there's some lonely stretches on the road. And everybody knows that you need to travel in packs. can't travel by yourself. And Jesus tells a story about a man who's leaving Jerusalem, traveling by himself, and he becomes a victim of robbers. Strip him down, take his wares, leave him half dead on the side of the road. And as unfortunate as that event is, it apparently appears to be the man's lucky day, because just by chance, Jesus says, somebody comes along right behind. Two people, actually. One, a priest... And then a few minutes later, apparently, a Levite. These are two people who are very knowledgeable about the Bible. These are two people who have the right answers. These are two people who are required by law to actually stop and help this man. And yet, they both see the man, and for some reason, they're unwilling to stop and love their neighbor. In other words, their extensive Bible knowledge did not transfer into action. Their message didn't match up with the messenger. And so there was some sort of disconnect between what they believed and how they acted, the priest and the Levite. And so Jesus intentionally and shockingly introduces a third traveler, a Samaritan. Now we lose the force of the Samaritan. You may know just from studying your Bible that the Jews and the Samaritans were really bitter enemies. But because you're not bitter enemies with a Samaritan, you don't feel so badly about a Samaritan. So you need to insert somebody that you would not want to be neighborly to. somebody you hated it might be a race it might be somebody from a different political spectrum might be somebody had a different sexual orientation might be a duke fan i mean you know all kinds of people you could insert but but somebody, you wouldn't stop and help this person. And, and you would probably say, not out loud and certainly not at church, this person doesn't really deserve help. And so Jesus intentionally draws this man into the story, and he becomes the person who's a model. He's the person that Jesus wants this lawyer to model his life after. This is the person who really has acted neighborly. You see the characteristics. Verse 33, the Samaritan man is half dead, and, or the, the man is half dead and the Samaritan comes by and his first reaction when he looks at the man on the side of the road is what? What does the text say? Compassion. He, he has a... He has a a gut instinct to help this guy he's compassionate towards this guy he's not sizing the situation up in any way he's not trying to evaluate who's on the ground he's not trying to look around at the situation and why did this man get himself into this situation shouldn't he have known he should have not been traveling the road by himself or he's not like me he just immediately sees the man and he has compassion The second thing, verse 34, he jeopardizes his own safety and is inconvenienced. Uh, Perhaps the robbers were still nearby. The man should have hurried on along. Who knows that he might have been the next person along the road. But he risks. He takes a real risk with his own safety and terribly inconvenienced. Because he puts his man up on his own mule and travels him back to an inn, and then it costs this Samaritan man some time and money to make sure the man recovers. So the story ends, and Jesus looks at the Bible teacher and says, well, which one of these proved to be a neighbor? And the Bible teacher, notice, can't even say the word Samaritan. He just says, the one the one who showed mercy, and so Jesus pats him on the back again and says, "Okay, when you got it down, you're getting you're getting good answers. Go and do likewise. Love Samaritans. No more questions from the Bible teacher at this point." Bible teacher just walks away. Several points of application, I think, can be made for us. Number one, it's apparently very easy for a church or an individual to be very religious. It's very easy for a church or Individual to think of themselves as good Bible students, even teachers, people who regularly attend Sunday school. I go to seminars. I go to apologetic conferences. I, I make sure I've got the right answers down. I've got questions of my own, and I am making sure I am armed and equipped with the right answers. But it's apparently easy to be equipped with the right answers and yet completely miss the gospel. It's very easy to have all of the right answers and miss the gospel. So we learn from our Bible expert here that knowledge does not necessarily lead to practical obedience. And Jesus is trying to help us say, men, disciples, see, I want you to be paying attention. You're you're the one who are going to carry the message on, and you just can't carry on the truth. You have to be the truth. You have to display the message with your life. You're going to talk about this grace and mercy that is beyond measure. And when you go in, you're going to have to live that beyond measure. You're going to have to be willing to lay your life down for the life of someone else. What's the most obvious or outstanding characteristic or feature of Christ Community Church. That's one of the questions I ask at the beginning. And when I ask that question in an inquirer's class or to people around, pretty frequently I'll get an answer like this: "Well, the people at Christ Community Church, and they take the Bible seriously." I mean, you bring your Bible, you read your Bible, you study your Bible. You're about the Bible, and I want to applaud that as loudly as I possibly can. I do not want to diminish that in any way, because we have a a desert out there of churches who are not proclaiming the truths of the Bible, and so I am very happy that we are about the Bible. But I think it's helpful for us to stop and look at the story and ask if our practice of the truth is equal to our knowledge of it. Is your practice of the truth equal to your knowledge of the truth? See, see it, it seems to me at the very least... Jesus is trying to help this scholar who's able to give a quick answer to be a little bit more humble. And and say, you know what, buddy? Before you give the quick answer, let's just make sure the lifestyle matches up. Which is probably a good lesson for all of us. By God's design along our path as a church is the half-dead community of Wilmington, North Carolina. In some places it looks all dead. God has put us on this path. We are Christ Community Church. We are in Wilmington, North Carolina. It is the year 2009. This is our path. You may wish for a million other paths. You're not on any of those paths. You're on this path. And right in the way is a half dead community. And, and when you look out at your city, when you pass by, what's your what's your first thought? What's your first thought about Wilmington? Is it compassion? Is it contempt? Are you bothered by Wilmington? Is it irritating? Is it somehow moving in on your territory? Do you think about it at all? Are you just apathetic? You just got your head down, you got all your own stuff doing, and the half-dead community is laying by the road, and you're just walking on by, and if somebody said, hey, here, here it is, you would have said, I never even saw it. You see, the man was looking around, he he saw the half-dead person, and the first thought he had was compassion. And so in what ways are you or we as a church moving compassionately towards those in need? Are there any limits or restrictions you or we as a body have applied To say, well, we just couldn't serve that group. I mean, you might not say it, but you just, you know, we're, this is we're just kind of this group of people, and we just, yeah, you, know, you can reach out to everybody, so we can't. There's, we just, you artificially stick a limitation or a restriction to say, we can't reach that group. I wonder if you're aware of the prejudices you hold. I'm not asking you if you're aware of your, if you are prejudiced. I'm telling you, you are prejudiced. I'm asking you, are you aware of the prejudices you hold? That there, there might be groups of people, people who have display certain lifestyles that you just say, we just can't interface with those people. We can't have a connection to those people. Maybe that you look at some people and you just say, you know, it's just too expensive. It, it would it, t- it would take too much financially. It would it would take too much relationally. It would take too much of my time, and I just don't have that to give. So so when I come to those people, I just sort of walk around them. You, you see, Jesus is asking some pretty tough questions here. He's really wanting us to examine ourselves as a community. Is is what we're preaching from up here, is what you're teaching people, is what you're basing your life on, is it coming out in you? Second application, and really the primary point of the whole passage is trying to answer the question What do I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, it's really a passage about evangelism, not a passage primarily about mercy. And so, what we're looking at the master evangelist, what would we pick up from Jesus here about evangelism? Does it seem odd to you that Jesus never answers the man's question? I mean, he couldn't have asked a more direct question. What do I need to do? And Jesus never answers the guy's question. Does it seem odd to you that Jesus never gives the guy the gospel? The man walks away and Jesus doesn't run after the guy. Oh, apparently you didn't get this part. Let Let me get you back. Let me... Have some more dialogue. He lets the man go. He he doesn't tell the man, you know what? You've got it all wrong. Even though the man has it all wrong. He doesn't look at the man and say, you know what? You've got it all wrong. Let me turn that around for you. Doesn't do that. That Those seem strange to you. Would that be what you would do in this case? It seems to me that Jesus is content in just letting the man walk away with something to think about. He's trying to ask probing questions of this man. He wants the man to talk. He wants the man to articulate where he is. He's trying to, if Jesus doesn't already know, and he probably does... He was trying to understand, well, what's the real condition of the man's heart? When people come and ask you a first question, that's just sort of the surface. He's trying to say, I hear that question, but I bet there's a a question underneath that question. And can we get to that question? And he's trying to help the man see the condition of his own heart. Don't you see? This man didn't even know the condition of his own heart. And so Jesus is saying, Let's see if you can see yourself right. Then maybe you can ask the right question. Jesus doesn't give the man the gospel. What does he give the man? He gives him the law. This is what you you want to get in, this is what you got to do. Shakes his hand, pats him on the back. Good luck. Go for it. I mean, knock yourself out. I'm trying to be perfect. Isn't that amazing? It's okay to give people the law. If you know the gospel, if you understand that they might go away and say, "I just can't do what he said." Maybe the man comes back. We don't know. He said, Jesus, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. I can't do it. Is there something else? Is there mercy for people like me? We don't know. There's probably someone here this morning like this man. You, you maybe you're not a Christian. You're spiritual you're religious. And you've got some vague idea about God and whether you articulate it or not, you you say something like, Well, I'm I'm gonna be good enough. I'm I'm not perfect, but you know, my good pile is better than my bad pile and I love a lot of people pretty well. And you're trying to justify yourself. You spend a lot of your mental energy just trying to justify yourself. And it's very easy. You get into conversations and then you're trying to justify yourself to other people. And it's really because you're trying to justify yourself to God. And if you're like that, I would say, just try your best. Really. Really. Try your very best to be perfect. Because I promise you it won't take long before your very best just isn't good enough. And then I hope you'll turn and say, I need another way. This way isn't going to work. Is there some other way to go other than doing it on your own? And you can cry out for Mercy. I wonder if we recognize that evangelism is a slow process. When you're talking to people about life's most important questions, you don't have to say everything at once. Is that not a relief? When somebody comes to you with the most important question, something that's burdening them, something that has eternal value, you don't have to say everything in one conversation. In young life, they would teach you that as you met a high school student, you should think, hey, we might be friends for the rest of our lives. So so you meet somebody and they're not a project. They're not on your to-do list. They're not just getting checked off. You're meeting someone and saying, Hey, we might be friends for the rest of our lives. So I don't have to say everything at once. A good young life leader meets someone, a high school student, and thinks to themselves, I'm going to attend your wedding. I'm going to go to your parents' funeral. I'm going to be in your life for a very long time, and you're going to have a lot of questions at 14 that are different when you get to 20 and 25. And 35, but I'm going to be around for that whole span. When you get into conversations with people, are you good at asking probing questions? Or do you feel compelled to give people answers? I mean, when somebody asks you a question like this, what do you do to inherit eternal life? Is your first thought to say, let me tell you everything I know. Or can you ask another question? Francis Schaeffer, a great evangelist himself, used to say this, if you have just one hour with someone, you should spend the first 55 minutes asking them questions then perhaps in the last five minutes you might be able to say something they need to hear right at that moment. Are you good at asking questions? See, most of the time when people come to you, they have something that they're not telling you right off in the surface. It's something beneath the surface. And, it, and you need to ask a question and say, Let me see if I can find out what the real question is so maybe I can give you a better answer. It might take a long time. Evangelism is a slow process, and I wonder if you're really content, if I'm really content, for God to do the converting. Is that okay if God does the converting? Or do you need to do it? Final observation. Do you know any good Samaritans? I many have you met one? Have you met somebody who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, mind? How much do you love yourself? I mean, a lot. You give yourself all kinds of breaks. Oh, tomorrow, Paul, you'll be, you'll get at it tomorrow. I know you've messed up for 45 years, Paul, but tomorrow is the day you're gonna do it. I'm going to cut you a break, Paul. Who am I talking to? Myself. I'm so gracious with myself. It's unbelievable. You know anybody who loves their neighbor as themselves? And the answer is, unless you've met Jesus, no. There isn't anybody. Jesus is the only one who has loved God. And he has come. And he has seen you. And he has seen me half dead on the side of the road. Unable, incapable of helping ourselves. And at great cost to himself, he stopped. And he looked at you with compassion. You weren't a bother for Jesus. You weren't an inconvenience. He came looking for you. And when He found you, He said, Yes! The one I've been looking for. And at great price to Himself, He picked you up. And He promises to pay so that one day you're going to be whole again. What was the power. What was the source of energy that the early church was supplied with? So that they, when they looked at their poor or the poor of the nation, when they looked at a diseased person and thought, if I help this diseased person, their disease might transfer to me and I might die, but I'm still willing to go in. What gave them the power to do that? I think understanding the Gospel. Otherwise, why would you do it? If you weren't utterly convinced that the Savior of the world has come and stopped to look at you and you understand your own condition, you're never going to give that to someone else. Let's pray together. Lord, there's some very... um, pointed questions that come out of this text some that would make us a little uncomfortable hey Jesus why didn't you share the gospel you should have done it this way we just get completely unarmed by the way you go about your life. We're a church that's very likely to fall in the category of religious experts. And I'm praying, Lord, that this story of the Good Samaritan would stick in our minds as you meant it to stick in our minds. To say to Christ Community Church, you're... you're message is great but be the same as a messenger of the gospel look at the city see that it's half dead have compassion we we need your help we're just prone to wonder and there's some religious people here who think they're okay Their balance sheet looks good to them. And I pray, Lord, that they would see that they cannot keep the law. Please help them see what we have seen in our own hearts and souls. And that there is mercy in the person of Christ to cover every sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.